Hello, another episode of The Circuit. Greetings, programs. Programs, AIs that are listening to this, AIs that will someday listen to this and then summarize it for our for our readers or listeners, since I was just <laughs> playing with this crazy solution called Chat YouTube and I put one of our videos in there, the... Um, I put the uh, the semiconductor power players one, and I just started asking it questions, summaries. What did Jay say about this? And it it's freaking worked. I couldn't believe it. Like summaries of videos, unbelievable. Uh, we can have the robots do the do the podcast, and we can just go sit on the beach and sip That's right. umbrella drinks. Ben's thoughts, Jay's thoughts on X. Train the AI on 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 Ben and Jay. Okay. <laughs> so one of our most popular episodes was our earnings preview which I think because we have a number of investors, hello to you, who we speak to regularly that listen to this. But it, you know, it, it piques my interest because you and I have a lot of conversations on both sides of the pond with technology companies relative to their investor relations strategies, with investment funds on the buy and the sell side as they're analyzing said companies. And it, it's, 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 you, we've talked about this before. It's interesting to sit in the middle of these two conversations. And I know that we hear things from the street that they don't tell the companies. And then we hear things from the companies that they don't tell the street. So it, it's an interesting dynamic. So I thought in this discussion, let's sort of unpack a couple of, of these things that we think are interesting. Um, like one, let's, let's also look at this from what's interesting, what matters to investors when it comes to semiconductors because it's different like my conversations with semiconductor investors is different than what I have about Dell or Apple or you know Microsoft and it's a very very different formula and then also what you know let's look at this from the perspective of the companies who are sitting there always saying my investors don't understand me they don't get it we're not just an x company so like it's just an interesting back and forth so that's that's how I think today would be a good uh, a good overview, looking at it from that perspective. That makes sense. I just want to add, just to be clear, things that the company tell us that they that they don't tell the street, we are not going to discuss any Correct. of those today. Right. All no. publicly available information. Yes. And obviously, there's there's re, there's fiduciary duty reasons that that things don't uh, don't don't cross those those two ponds. Um, okay, so let's let's start with sort of the the kind of investor side of things. I, I'm sensitive to what I think is an interesting problem for particularly the sell side. Um, and, and I think part of this speaks to why there's a bit of of a, of a disconnect. Um, the company saying we don't we feel misunderstood and and then said, you know, investment company having a fairly, sometimes rigid model on either the, the spreadsheet and or, 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 or product market expertise. But a, a lot of, of sell-side bankers cover, I would say, the average maybe two dozen companies, tickers. That's a lot to cover. You know, like it's really hard to give any company really what they deserve or what the IR you know team believes they deserve in coverage when you've got – you're covering that much content and – trying to update your models, trying to have conversations with their executive teams. It's just like, I'm sensitive to how hard that is. Like they just don't have enough time. They don't have, and there's great companies that I've asked like, Hey, are you going to cover so-and-so semiconductor company? Their multiple is ridiculous. They're going to like, and they're like, I just don't have time to do it. And so I'm, I'm sensitive to that as a, 
as a problem statement, you know, number one that the sell side faces and to the degree that I just don't feel like a lot of companies and their AR teams understand that dynamic about how difficult that is for um, for their investors to truly cover them in, in really any meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's there's three stakeholders here, right? There's the there's the the company, there's the the buy side, and then there's the sell side. And even within the company, there's the IR team who typically should have a feel of pulse for the the street, but then there's the executive team who who aren't you know they they have real jobs so they don't necessarily know up to the second what investors are thinking and so you start pulling apart those groups it you start to understand some of the dynamics right U- ultimately we live in a capitalist society so the shareholders the buy side are you know top of the pyramid and even within the the buy side there's two distinct groups right there's there are the generalists and the specialists right 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 and and like you know, people who are specialists in semis, I they they tend to really really know their stuff. Um, I'm you know often more than me. Really really smart people who really know their stuff. Um, but you know, you talk about the sell side analysts having to cover twenty stocks. Even even a specialist tech specialist or semi specialist on the buy side is covering a hundred stocks. Um, and so the buy side when it when it works well, the buy side can lean on the sell side, the research analysts to help them with stuff, right? And so, uh, but then you're right, the sell side, the sell side analyst, it's very, very competitive. It's not a fun business. I used to work there. It was a great job, but it's a terrible business. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're under, you know, all kinds of time pressure and they have to cover 20, 30 stocks, half of which they had to cover because their management yep. told them to. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, and then, and then within all those boxes, there's varying degrees of competence. And, and skill and will. So yeah, it's it's a tricky it's a tricky problem. But I, I certainly agree. Like I, I've worked on the sell side and then I worked went and worked inside a company doing IR and there is just it's like through the through the looking glass, different different universe. I'm, I'm in the upside down. Yeah. I, I won't say which one is the upside down with the evil demons, but one yeah, of them is right. the upside down. Well, and and it's interesting too because even with a lot of the like you said the specialists that I talk to, sometimes it comes down to like are these is this a technology conversation? And I'm talking specifically about semiconductors, right? Like, is this something that you need to know the nitty gritty of uh, transistor design, architecture design, process roadmaps, etc.? Or is it the market, right? And they're focused on a market conversation of. I've sized this market. I believe this is the TAM. And then to the degree that I believe X number of players or one or two players are well positioned for that TAM right within my thesis. So I've seen it from there's a technology product thesis, then there's a market thesis. I don't often see those two things converge in one sort of form of an analysis. But I think that's, again, why said investors consume a, a numbers of pieces of content, right? They don't live in, in holes and only consume their own thesis. They, they look at sell side notes or they look at, you know, co- colleagues content, etc. But, but I do think it's interesting that, that, that is your approach. Do I have a fundamental belief in this company's um, product roadmap and the business of that or the market opportunity and how positioned they are in that as sort of two tracks that, that again, often, don't even get communicated well from the technology company side. 
it tends to be like, oh, you should love my my technology because it's amazing. I'm an engineering company, and so look at all the things I could do. Not tying that to market TAM, right? Or 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 the broader thesis that's being thought about them when it comes to their specific technology. Yeah, I think that's that's very accurate. Is the the company, the people on the company side tend to focus on what makes them special and what makes them different because that's what they're doing every day, um, and they don't always understand that what what parts of those are important to convey to the street. And by contrast, the street, if you talk to any investor, I mean, they can, sum, they, good investors can summarize a stock in two or three sentences. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, it's like, oh, this company is really good in this market. It's number one in this market, but the market is shrinking. I'm not going to, I'm going to sell that stock. Right. Right. That's, that's sort of like, they, they have to work very hard to condense all that knowledge and they look at things very, very high level strategically. Well, then you go to the company and the company as well says, well, yeah, the market's shrinking, but we have this new product and the product is going like this. And like, there's all kinds of like behind the scenes actions taking place um, that really don't matter to the street and are very important to the company because it's what the people at the company are spending all their time on, but don't matter to the street because they are far in the future. They're very small to earnings. They're, you know, and, and I think sometimes that condensation process, condensing process, uh, leads a little bit of groupthink in on the buy side. Um, sometimes, yeah, and we, which will occasionally offer offer up opportunities. Like, oh, everybody on the street is missing this, right? And um, right, I think that that's where that's where the that's 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 a good opportunity. That's you know and for companies to sort of convey it, but they have to understand that like the stuff that they spend 24 hours, you know, 12 hours of working days thinking about is 10 seconds in an investor's mind. Yeah. That's a great, well put. And and the other thing I think is, is sort of underappreciated from your casual pundits. And then to some degree, the, the IR teams, um, and 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 th- and if I if I was an investment banker, this is exactly how I would think about it. So I don't fault the process, right? But but essentially, they're looking at in my calendar year, I'm managing X amount of money, and in that calendar year, I want to exit this year having had some increase to my portfolio. So therefore, you as a as a investment from an investment thesis standpoint, will have both a short term picture. I like this stock this year, but also a long-term picture, right? What are my stocks that are going to grow five years plus? But that, that's, that's like, and just to put, a, put a, a very specific example on this, this is why Intel is challenged as a stock. No one believes, even if you believe Intel is going to be great in five years, it's not going to make anybody money in, in 2023. So there's the reality of the short term. I've got $1,000, right? Let's just use it that way. And I need to make money on it. Who, who am I going to put my stocks in? Intel might not be one of them, right? And so that's why I think the short-term plus long-term perspective just gets underappreciated when you think about it from a money-making standpoint. Yeah, uh, you know, it, uh, it's, it's, it's always a bad sign when you walk into a company or you walk into a CEO's office and that there's a live ticker of the share price. Right? <laughs> don't 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 worry about it. Just don't don't worry about it. You you have a business to run. Yeah. Don't worry about the that's, share price. That's, that's exactly true. Um. 
What what when you did this? I think this is just sort of helpful from from two things. One, because I I, I have this conversation with um, with different different sides of the the investment houses as to just how do they get ideas for um, for for content? This is a sell side point too, right? How do you just you're looking for something to say that someone else hasn't already said? And to one degree, that's a challenge also for companies and their their IR firms. But when you when you sort of did this, what what were some of those things that spurred kind of your ideas or, or shook your thinking or got you to think about a company different? Was it like news, uh, an acquisition? Was it was it really led by IR or was it external sorts of circumstances that kind of facilitated getting your brain thinking about this opportunity or um, differently? So. I, I think every analyst goes about this a little bit differently, right? Every sell-side analyst has their own franchise and they have their different specialties. Um, you know, one thing I like to do a lot was to go visit private companies, right? I'm in, I'm in the Bay Area. I can go up and down and see, you know, half the tech startups in the, in the country. Getting to know them is very helpful and informative, Um because they may be competing with some of the public companies and have an interesting insight. Uh, I, I like to travel. I, I would go to China all the time. I have a lot of ties there. Um, and so I'd go to see Chinese companies because, because there's things that are common knowledge there that aren't well known here. And there's an information arbitrage between mm -hmm. the two. Mm -hmm. um, some people go to all the conferences. That's a really useful way to do it. Um, yeah. But every, every analyst is going to be a little bit different. And, you know, some have surveys, some, some have a different tier to talk to distributors, whatever. There's a whole, whole way of doing it. The, the problem is there's, there's never enough time, right? You think about exactly. the average analyst covering 20 stocks. That means, you know, at least 15 days every quarter, you have to be in the office for an earnings call. To be on the call, you have to write a note. Like, you can't be out seeing things. So already that's a big chunk of the year taken away. Uh, and then you start adding up you know, maintenance stuff and all the other pieces that sort of go with it, you know, it's, it's, you're lucky if you have a day of a, a day a week to get out of the office. Right. 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 Um, I, I think there, and, and then, and on top of that, you're, I mean, honestly, another big part of idea generation comes from talking to the buy side, right? Because you're talking to, you, you know, you, you're a sell side analyst, you cover 25 stocks. You may talk to some hedge fund manager who is really, really, doing a deep dive into one particular stock. Right. Smart person, they're going to have strong opinions and have good insight because they, they can often afford to hire outside experts and get you know new kinds of information. The, the problem with that is the, the buy side knows that and will absolutely game it, mm. right? And so you'll, uh, every once in a while, I get some, some fund manager call me up who I've never heard of before. It's like, hey, have you ever heard of this company? They're doing really crazy things. They're talking their own book. And, right. um, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. You just have to be, as a sell side analyst, you have to be very aware of that process. It absolutely takes place. Um, I would, I will say that, um, you, you really don't want to be in a position where you're just writing on news, right? Because once the earnings are out, it's, it's no longer, right. you're not an analyst, you're a reporter. And that's, right. that's, you know, that's why everybody has a subscription to the journal. They can read the earnings results in tomorrow's newspaper. You have to be. You have to have an opinion ahead of that right. to really differentiate. And and you'll you'll see that some like some analysts like you cover twenty five stocks, you're going to have your favorites, and you're going to have other ones that you just have to cover. You do maintenance coverage, and they probably only publish one note a quarter, which is right after earnings. Right. Um, 
So you, you don't want to wait for news. You don't want to wait for M and A. Um, you don't you 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 don't really rely on IR much. IR also is very busy. They have the whole universe to cover, and so they're they're not um, they're not good sources of inspiration for ideas typically. Uh, and you know that that's there there are pros and cons of that. Obviously, you know someone talking their own book, it's the companies can talk their own books. So you have to be careful what they say. But IR people just that's not typically their function to provide good ideas. It's very hard for them. I shouldn't say it's not their function. It's very hard for them to provide good ideas in the near term. So do you, one of the things I've, I've sort of had conversations around, um, particularly with, with the buy side is, um, exercises that they can do to kind of re reevaluate models. And again, this, this has to come from like, you have a you have a core thesis on on an opportunity or a company that you were looking has been stagnant for a while and so it's sort of like a I had I had a model I had a financial model that's worked for X number of years um, do I like go through an exercise of if I was to kind of recover this company today what would change what would not change would would anything change would would it be the same because right companies evolve and what they were 10 years ago is may or may not be what the, what they are today unless you're ti um so elements of that i think are just and i know time is not an issue but i'm always curious like because i get some of those questions like what's changed how should i think about things have changed are there metrics that i should care about that i'm not thinking about because again i'm looking at this company through a you know a one-sided one-sided or one-dimensional mirror so that, that's a tricky question to answer because we'd have to get into some very, very different constituencies among the buy side, right? And they're very, depending on the size and type of a fund, the the buy side fund manager is gonna respond differently to that. Obviously they all wanna be <clears throat> proactive and thinking ahead and looking at things long-term, um, but they all also have some very, very near-term deadlines of their own, right? Hedge funds have to report every month, yeah. um, mutual funds every quarter uh, and, and there's certain sort of you know calendar dates that matter more than others, and that sort of drive a lot of thinking. I will say that the the really good fund managers absolutely do dedicate time to longer term thinking. They don't do it every day; it's not their biggest concern. Um, but they they have all kinds of mechanisms in place to sort of evaluate those things. All right, and so I I may have talked you know there's fund managers who I'll talk to every week about what's going on in the market, what's the news, what do we think of this, what do we think of that? And then once a year, that person will give me a call and say, hey, what do, we, what do you think about this long-term stuff, right? Where, where is this company positioned in the, in, the, in the sort of big picture? And, and honestly, I actually do that more now that I'm not on the sell side, right? Mm. I'll meet up with, with fund managers or PMs and they'll, we'll have those kinds of conversations. Um, because again, like the the sell side is really, really the the, mech, the mechanics of it really lend itself yeah. to near term sure. thinking. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, the other thing I like about the buy side conversations is, you know, I mean they they see how their portfolios are being impacted in real time by a company who's doing really well or doing bad or fundamental reasons why one particular company keeps returning them, you know, X percent on an annual basis. Whereas, you know, the, the sell side tends to keep a, I don't want to say a rudimentary model, but 
but something that's that's looking specifically at ag growth sector, right? But they're not the ones seeing how money's you know being made or not being made in real time based on a name. Yeah, I mean that's that's the tricky thing. Like, you know, a, a lot of the buy side will just call up and get a model from the sell side. Right. right now, maybe and, and some of them will make changes to it, and some of it won't. I think when when investors are new to a company, new to a stock, they they'll, they'll typically build their own model. They may start with some bone, bare bones from the sell side. They'll build their own model, and some will go deeper. Uh, but but for the you know there, there there's a, there's a whole range of outcomes. I, I don't think anyone is nobody's sort of looking at the model. Well, I should say nobody, but for the most part, people don't look at their financial models and assume that this is providing an answer, right? right. Oh, you have EPS out to five decimal places for the next six quarters. That's what I'm searching for. Right. That's, right. you know, I, I, when, when I used to train, when I was on the street, I used to train junior junior analysts, junior bankers. One of the things I'd always say is this this model is not the answer. It's the purpose of the models. It's not to give you an answer. The purpose of the model is to show you what the constraints are in the model. Hmm. Right? Because... You know, people come up with these, you know, super detailed 500 row models that are mostly overkill. What you really need is, you know, for the most part, for most of these companies, there's a few sort of revenue drivers, units, prices across a number of product lines. And then and then there's a few, you know, there's a few cost items, cost of goods sold and then the operating expenses. Like you really, that, that should be enough to tell you everything you need to know. You don't need to get right. into super levels of detail because... As you add those layers of details, you're adding layers of assumptions and variability, right? The, the key thing is understand like, oh, if the company is going to build this new product line and it's going to cost this much on R&D, how does that pay, pay, plan out, pan out over right. three years, right? Those kinds right. of things. Yeah. Well, and, and some of the metrics around like how does that impact their gross margin and then do I believe that that's going to pay off, um, especially when you've got an, an increase in, in CapEx etc. Like th- those are all, I think, interesting, interesting metrics um, to sort of hone in. on. I mean, I have a lot of conversations around s- simplistic things because again, semis is a relatively mature category. So we're not talking about somebody who's, you know, a hockey stick in growth, right? Like you would have in different, you know, prior builds, but there's the sort of broader conversations, who's undervalued, who's overvalued, right? And so you can look at what the multiples are and just sort of ha- say, okay, is this a is this a, is this going to lead to growth? Do I still believe they're undervalued even if their PE is 50, 60, 70 or are they undervalued at 8, 12, 15, you know, based on their growth opportunities? So th- those are more more conversations that kind of I hear around around those models, but um, again, yeah, s- but- simple metrics but just trying to figure out where where pockets of growth may come from in a non-hockey stick sort of market. Yeah, I mean cuz that goes back to this condensing I was talking about before, where you have to boil down a whole company to a to a simple decision: Do I buy or sell right. the stock? Right. right. And so you you have your thesis, and then you look at the numbers, and you say, "Oh, this this stock has a it's a this company has a great a great product, and they're growing really nicely." That's the company. What's the stock look like? Well, the stock right. is super expensive because everybody knows that all the above is true, right. and so. You, 
you have to condense that all down and and make that decision based on those two things. And the, and the model absolutely sort of provides you with that sort of financial backing. Like, oh, I, I find this a lot. Like companies will get really excited about some new product. Mm-hmm. And, and they'll talk it up to the street. And then the street will say, oh, that's, that's great. I'm glad, you know, your, your, your widget is got such great specs, but, but it's only going to add, you know, a penny to revenue or a penny to earnings. Um, and, and th- that happens a lot. That's sort of that mismatch. And right. I, cause I also think that one of the, one of the weird things for me from going inside a company was that most people don't look at the company from a company perspective. You're working inside a company. You have your job to do. You have to develop this product. You have to file this report. You got six meetings tomorrow. Right. Looking at it from a very high level company perspective, there are very, very few people inside a company who are paid to do that. Most people are paid to focus on their, their specific job. And that, that actually, it, it's kind of this weird dynamic where it's the CEO's job to have that sort of company-wide perspective and, and maybe the CFO, but nobody else, right? And I, I always thought that was one of the ways I could add value or at least differentiate when I was working inside a company is as the, uh, you run IR, you hear what investors say, you hear their two sentences condensation of the, of the whole company's thesis. And being able to communicate that internally is, is it's not always well received, but it's it's an important right. um, it's an important message. Right. Well, and and just br- broadly, and I'm making a, a massive generalization, but the thing that I've always found was super interesting about semiconductor companies is they typically generally operate as engineering companies, and so yep. you get a lot of like, look how amazing this technology is not tying that to rubber meets the road. You know, how does this increase our TAM or our SAM? How does this bring us into adjacency markets? And so, you know, I I feel bad for a lot of these investors who aren't technical, who are like, well, look, I mean, don't talk to me like you're an engineering company. Like I need, I need this story to land and make sense why I think, you know, you're going to make money and it's going to impact, impact the stock. But that more than any other category, I feel that like engineering you know, tech focus as a part of their posture, whereas other other companies just do a really good job telling stories. Yeah, I, I agree with that hundred percent. I and, and this is something I've noticed for a long time is when when people, you know, people in general talk about technology or definitely semis, the 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 coverage you see in the press is is it's one of two extremes. It's either incredibly engineering detailed down into the weeds with all the acronyms, acronyms and speeds and feeds and totally impenetrable unless you're an engineer in that field or it's super dumbed down oversimplified ooh this makes the internet go faster this is more secure like and getting it somewhere in the middle where you understand enough of the technology and the trade-offs involved in those engineering decisions and then being able to convey that strategically and say, oh, because we chose to go with this, therefore we can go after this market is, is, is very hard to do. Um, but that's, that's where the real value is. I mean, that, it's basically the idea I built my career right. around is being, it's right. being able to sit in the middle of those two and provide, you know, not too dumb, but not too technical analysis. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the, the root there just again, comes from really seeing the market through that lens and in a different form of analyst lens than a financial analyst lens, which is what we we both can do. 
but but taking that market approach because you're absolutely right. Product announcements almost rarely lead to any significant like increase, you know, increase in a stock unless you're again Nvidia and you just saw, you know, make conversations about next generation GPUs and AI and your stock goes up, you know, 20%. But generally that 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 doesn't happen. But I was also in a room when when uh, Jensen made a statement that he shouldn't with a bunch of investors and the yeah. stock declined like 20 bucks. Yeah. So Yeah. I mean, Jensen, Jensen, Jensen Huang is, is particularly interesting. I mean, he, I think he's somewhat unique in the street is that he likes to talk about the big picture strategic issues. He does. Right. He really does. And, and he's very good at that. He's both very compelling and he's very intelligent. And when he speaks about it, what I, what I found is a lot of CEOs can either talk the engineering talk or they can talk the big picture stuff, but very hard for any of them to do very hard for many of them to do both. And Jensen is really, really good about like both being able to talk about a big picture, but right. I, I've never doubted that he understands like all the technical weeds of his product. Like he understands all right. the technical stuff too. Right. The, the, the problem I think he faces is that he prefers to talk about the big picture stuff and it sometimes gets him out over his skis. Once a cycle, it gets him out over his skis, but. Right. Well, and I, I, even though I appreciate and and he's been the source of multiple aha moments for me in, in meetings I've had over the last, you know, 20 years. It, it, you also have to connect like that that really big picture viewpoint, like you've said, to kind of the the nitty gritty specifics. Like he's very good at that, using perspective or an analogy or a historical precedent about why this changed and why that matters now. Right. right. It, it's sometimes really hard to see until many many years after that he was even correct, right? But yet he's he's trying. He's so wrapped up in like this is such a big deal. Why don't you see it? Like you should understand. But I, I always find that interesting. But on, on this CEO point, I'm curious your perspective because, you know, we've seen in semis a number of companies who, um, you know, varying degrees of their, their highs and lows go through a CEO change. And I've always found it interesting how just some CEOs just have a – like the street just likes them more than others. And sometimes it doesn't even really have anything to do with like the company being in a bad position. They just don't like – they just don't like the CEO. Like they don't get along. They, they, they. Not, maybe they just don't have confidence. I'm curious in your dynamic on Jensen's unique, right? He is one of the only still founders. But I even saw this not even in semis with Apple because it took some time for, for the for the street to embrace Tim after Steve. And there was times that Steve would have to come back on calls to help add his perspective because he was concerned investors were freaking out or the stock was starting to dip in, in after hours. And so that, that CEO kind of transition, I think is really interesting in the relationship that that executive team plays with, with their investors. Yeah. I, I know that when I was an analyst, the, when I, there was a new CEO announced and if I didn't know him or her, the first thing I would do is look at their background, right? What, what, where did they come up through the ranks? And usually in semis companies, they come through engineering, but um, mm -hmm. sometimes they'll come up from the sales side of things. And and I know that that's going to mean different things, right? You have to pay attention to that. And and the you know and if they come up from the CFO function, then I just walk away from the stock. But it's a different story. Mm. Mm. Um, on the flip side of that, I have found that um, CEOs generally do not like talking to the street. They don't dislike it, but they they it's a necessary evil. And um, because because imagine you you know you you spent your career and you've gotten to the point where you're running a company so you, clearly you're you're pretty competent you've gotten right. a lot of things right 
And then you walk into a meeting in a tiny little cramped hotel room on some non-deal roadshow at an investor conference. And some 23-year-old, a year out of Princeton, is complaining <laughs> to you about how you're running your business. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's they. I, I, I think most CEOs just sort of put up with it. I think where, where CEOs tend to be very do best is when they they do have some good relationships with right. the street, with the buy side and the sell right. side. Where there's you know they're not going to like everybody, but they have a few a few people who they can rely on and talk to regularly. Like I I, I once worked with an analyst and he was covering a different sector. But CEOs would call him up and ask him for advice, mm. right? And I always thought that was like that's sort of like that's that's rare. That's a, that's a good analyst. And I think the CEOs that just sort of just grit grit their teeth and put up with the street for right. you know a brief period right. of time will will always are always going to struggle. As you know, they don't have to, you don't have to like everybody, but having a few analysts who or a few fund managers who you have a good relationship with can can mean a lot because they they can typically again the buy side is pretty smart and they. Good yeah. fund managers can provide good insight. They're not always right, right. but right. there's something right. there. But, but I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And I've had this conversation with a number of big, big tech CEOs who I know share that opinion that you just, uh, that you just outlined. They, their, their focus, and, and rightly so when growing and building a business, is always on their customers. And I've always tried to say, like, that, that's super important, but you kind of also have to view investors as your customers. They might not be buying your product the same way, but they're buying right essentially your company. And to have that viewpoint of just how important it still is, yes, you talk to them differently. Yes, you communicate vision, but that's still taking a customer-centric approach, and it just has to, happens to be towards your investor community, not just those who are buying your, your products or your services. Yeah, I, being a CEO can be a can be a tough job. I mean, I, I don't want to feel too too sorry for them. They get paid well, but it, it, there's you have to balance so many different constituencies. Yeah, and the, I think the tendency is, in some cases, yes, it's to your customer to sort of favor your customers as sort of the the first person you call in, in the day. Other people, it's your employees, like specific departments who you sort of favor. Um, but you have to balance the employees and the company bureaucracy and your customers and the street broadly defined. And then, and then on top of that, you have, you know, you have to manage the pack of feral cats. That's your board of directors. Yeah. Right. It's, it, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of challenges in that. And I, I think it's just human nature to sort of prefer one group over another and rather spend time, yeah. time with them over there. And, and that, I, that's, that's okay. But I, I think where CEOs get in troubles when they, over favor one to the expense of, to the, you know, to the, at the expense of others entirely. Correct. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and it's interesting too. I mean, I, I tend to feel like, you know, we're at this, this point in technology. I mean, I, I saw this tweet the other day and I thought it was super interesting. I retweeted it where, you know, you look at past, past, uh, growth stages of technology, um, you know, we're hockey sticks because we were bringing new people, humans or businesses into the digital age. And not to say that every human is now connected or every business is fully embraced in digital, but the hockey stick, I think, looks a little bit different 
towards sort of markets going forward, right? It's not like we're going to, like automotive is a good one. It's not like we're going to sell particularly more cars. We're just selling different cars. So yes, it's a gigantic opportunity for semis, but we're not bringing on new, new buyers, right? We're not bringing new people to the internet or new people to computers or new people who didn't have smartphones, which were massive hockey sticks. So looking at this as a somewhat mature kind of category is it, I think is a new challenge for investors and for investor relations. I'm not saying there won't be things that happen hockey sticks in the future. I'm just saying if you just look at what's on the short-term horizon, you got to handle this differently when you're looking at either share-taking from a vested party or areas that are, you know, again, you know the volume sales. You're just putting up an increasing bomb cost that, that goes to semi as a part of share of wallet of, of a product. But I just think it's interesting. Like I, I wonder if we're in this kind of new – new approach, right? New approach to from how investors think about this, but maybe even more importantly, new approach on how IR has to think about this in terms of both mindshare, the opportunity, because I do feel like we're in a very different period than kind of the last 20 years when it came to accelerated growth cycles. Yeah, I, I think that is, I think it's a big problem because across the industry, because a lot of, a lot of people who are CEOs today came up in the ranks during the PC boom and the internet boom which were you know, mm. fundamental changes in, in just access to information. And then there's another crop that came up during the smartphone boom, which was equally impactful. And I know after, mm. you know, sort of in the, in the, in the 2010s, there was, a, there was definitely this unspoken sense among investors that we're just sort of looking for the new thing. And I think that explains a lot of the hype around AR and VR. We're all looking right. for the next right. big thing. And, and that may not arrive, right? And I, maybe it'll be cars, maybe, maybe not. Um, but we shouldn't depend on it because while that was taking place, the industry absolutely matured. It consolidated down radically. Uh, and I think understanding that, I, I think a lot of investors today are very disciplined and they're not, they're not necessarily looking for the next big paradigm shift or what, disruption or innovation or whatever the big words are. They're looking for much more practical, tangible things. And you're right. I think that uh, that is something that that investor relations teams have to come to grips with is to understand that sort of fundamental mindset of what most investors are thinking and adapting their communication strategies accordingly. Yeah. And within this vein that we talked about, which is that nobody has enough time to really cover them. So like you really have to do the work to help handhold to some degree part of their thesis, part of their concerns, part of, or, or, or justify, you know, their, their beliefs, right. With what you've got. So you've only got so much time to do that. You know, you can't, you can't cover everything. And so there's more impactful ways. I think companies are going to have to deal with this, recognizing that you've got to do more work for, again, these customers who are essentially buying, you know, buying your stock. That's right. And I think there's a whole playbook of, of ways to get companies interested, get, sorry, get analysts interested in your company and your stock. Sure. And and then how to communicate to them, what to talk about, what not to talk about, how to frame answers, yeah. how to walk through Q&A, how to present. There's a whole a whole list of things that, that can be done um, that do not necessarily get reflected every day because there's a, you know, an infinite workload in a lot of these investor relation jobs. Yeah. No, I totally agree. All right. Interesting stuff. I could talk about this all day from an invest perspective and even, even micro minutia, little, little nitty gritty tickers might be fun at some point, but um, I'll leave it at that. 
good good uh good conversation hope everybody uh everybody has a great week weekend wherever you're listening to and we will talk to you next time farewell